All right, get ready. Men and women, husbands and wives. Oh, you can just pick your joke, right? Pick your stereotype. There are hundreds of them. I mean, you can just, which one's the one you've heard more recently? How about this one? How many men does it take to change a toilet paper roll? And the answer, of course, is no one knows it has yet to happen. What do you get when you cross a woman with a microwave? You get eight hours of nagging in six minutes. I married Mr. Wright. I just didn't know his first name was always. It takes two to make a marriage, a girl and her mother. The trouble with some women is they get all excited about nothing, and then they marry him. The only reason husbands pass gas more than wives is that wives won't shut up long enough to build up pressure. Do not shoot the messenger. I did not write these. Adam and Eve had an ideal marriage. He didn't have to hear all about the men she could have married. She didn't have, need to hear about all the dishes his mother cooked. Maybe we can all say this one. Men marry because they're tired. Women marry because they're curious. Both wind up disappointed. So we have a lot of broad strokes to get drawn about men and what they're like and women and what they're like. Husbands, what they're like, how they fail. Women, wives, how they fail as wives. As, as wives. And so we hear a whole lot of explanations. There's the Mars and the Venus thing, and there's a whole lot of sexism talk and people saying, oh, that's not fair, we shouldn't. You know. So there's this counter movement where we work hard to just protect everybody's feelings and we say we shouldn't do that to people, and so we want to just treat everybody like they're all really, we're all really alike at heart. We're all just human beings, and there's not really any distinction. But all you got to do is live with a member of the opposite sex and you're experience tells you differently, doesn't it? There's a reason for that. Because when you look at marriage, and that's what we're looking at, by the way, if you're single here, you're going to hear stuff today that is applicable, yes, to husbands and wives, but it's going to be applicable to how you relate to the opposite sex. So hang on, don't check out on that, okay? And when God addresses marriage, when he gives his perspective to it, and that's what I'm here for, I'm here not to tell you the best ideas anybody, individual has come up with. I'm t- we're talking about, okay, what does God say? Is there a harmonious kind of thing in marriage? What does healthy marriage look like? If we ask God that, and he says, I got, I designed it. We saw that last week. I planned it. I've got ideas, and I, I've got directives for it. When we do that, we see that what God does is when he sees this whole malaise that goes on about the differences between men and women, and should we avoid that, and should we, not, should we kind of downplay it, God steers the vehicle directly into the traffic. And goes, oh, no, no, big differences, huge differences, fundamental differences that were designed to be that way. And part of understanding the challenges that come to make relationships harmonious, especially husband and wife ones, but just any way you relate to members of the opposite sex, whether you're in cell group with them, whether you work alongside them, whether you share a family with them in some way, part of understanding that challenge and part of the key to harnessing Harmony in it is to grasp 
that the one who made us actually did something very, very distinct. And understanding what that is and how to navigate it is absolutely essential to living in community, healthy community, with members of the opposite sex, and especially living in harmony when it comes to the marital relationship. What we're going to do is take a look at the distinctives between men and women, husbands and wives, male and female, today. And what we're going to see is that while, while they're not universally uniform, they, those differences are enormous. And they're intentional. If you have a Bible, I invite you to write to the beginning of the story, right to the design, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at Genesis 1, 2, and a little bit in chapter 5, a little later, show you some other passages. And we'll start by looking at a very common, uh, you, you probably have heard references, even if you've never been in church before today, you've probably heard reference to this little passage here where God is creating the world in which we live and the design of the planet and the cosmos and everything in them and then he gets to human beings and he and this is what he says that makes you distinct from everything else around you the animal kingdom uh, the greater cosmos everything that there's something true about you and about me that sets us apart that actually elevates us to the top of the food chain to the top of the creation order under God and it says in Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, he's, he's done all these things. Verse, the verse before says he saw that it was good. And then he said, now, now let us make mankind, humankind, in our image, in our likeness. He's talking in relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, pre-existing God. We're going to do something with this one, this creation that's different from everybody else. We're going to create this with the unique property of it being in our image and in our likeness. What does that mean? We'll talk a little bit more about that. Won't dig out all the theology of that, but there's something, just to put it this way, there's something much more like God about you than anything else that exists that draws breath. And so it says, and it will let them rule over the fish of the, the sea, birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created humankind, man, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. And then he has this phrase, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he sends them off to multiply and to do what he intended them to do. Among the questions you might ask when you see that little passage is, if God created a, a species that reflects his image, why the two genders? Why do you have to have two genders? Why couldn't he just create a race that is just his image bearer? There's something unique and purposeful about the fact that he created two genders distinct from each other to the point where he actually highlights it. It's almost like he puts it in there to make a point. In the image of God, he created mankind. And then he adds, male and female, he created them. That phrase is, described, is, is actually repeated several times in Scripture for emphasis, and without digging it all out, there's a distinct reason. And, and part of the reason for that, the main reason for that, is because each of the genders contributes, hear this, a portion of the image of God. That when you combine them together, you get a fuller picture of the image and likeness of God. That portion is given to men and it's given to women. There's something distinct about them intentionally. That together they are more the image of God comprehensively than they are apart and so from the very beginning of creation god has said i made you male and i made you female now understand they are both the image of god we're going to come back to that both represent the image and the likeness of god but those those distinctives 
they are colossally different. There's physiological distinctions between males and females. There's hormonal distinctions. There's developmental distinctions, behavioral distinctions, perceptional dis- distinctions. There are mechanical skill set distinctions. That is not just because culture has, has forced that to happen. It is innate to the ma- way we are made and the way our bodies function. Let me give you some examples. Do you know that the cells in the brains of women... Are, are organized differently than the cells of the brains in men. The cells in the brains of women are packed a little tighter than they are in men, which means, therefore, that men have got actually larger brains, hang on, than women. But the women's are more condensed and can do things differently because of how they're arranged. IQs have universally been imperceptible difference between men and women but the wiring of the brain is different and so having the same number of brain cells squeezed into a tighter space gives women an advantage in speech now you're going to oh, see the jokes are going to come to you I'm, I'm not even going to tell them okay and perceptual skills brain waves tra- in men travel more quickly and they're unidirectional one thing at a time i'm not okay jo- you you do the jokes in your head i'm not gonna get in any more trouble Women, less quickly, and omnidirectional. Many, many things going on at one time. Women are more likely than men to use both right and left sides of their brains in verbal functions. Men's brains are more compartmentalized. Means women are better at integrating thought and feeling than men. Men are more single-minded and highly focused. Oh, my gosh, I have just so many jokes. I so, I'm not going to be a comedian today, I'm just going to plow through this. Do you know that food travels differently, more slowly through a woman's digestive tract than a man's? So women are three times more likely to be chronically constipated. Just saying. Because of the hormonal difference, female liver metabolizes alcohol differently. And the result, if a woman drinks the same amount of man as a similar weight, she has a higher blood alcohol level. Women produce less serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter. You've probably heard that term that controls mood. They produce less of that which controls mood. (laughs) Moving on. But it does explain why they are historically more prone to depression and craving carbohydrates like chocolate. Men are more accurate in tests of target-directed motor skills. Women tend to be better at rapidly identifying matching items or what's called perceptual speed, which I saw a sign on a paint store wall that said, husbands choosing colors must have a note from their wives. (laughs) The only joke I'll throw in there. Okay. Women have a greater verbal fluency, faster at certain precision manual tasks, such as placing pegs in designated holes on a board, and... It even comes to behavioral things, which scientists say, USA Today said this, the report, that it is because of the wiring plus the hormone differences in male and women that 79% of women, when they asked her what their favorite activities in the top echelon of the list is shopping, 79%. When men are asked a similar question, 74% of men say They would rather do anything else other than go shopping. Those those distinctions 
are there. They're not moral distinctions. They're not value distinctions. It doesn't make one better than the other. They are just different. They are both innate and they're learned. They're personality-based and they're culturally-based, but there are big differences. How you as a woman react to those differences, how you as a man respond to those differences will go a long way to determining your interrelational level of health with members of the opposite sex. And so there's, a, what, you know, statistically, if you're married, statistically, far and away, you marry somebody who's radically different than you. Skill set, personality type, radically different. Most of the people, most of what we have is not you look like somebody like you. You look, like, you look for somebody, you wind up just craving somebody other than you because there's an old expression that I think we need to tweak. And here's what it needs to be. Opposites attract until they repel. And that's what tends to happen. Because eventually, it's th- those differences start to irritate us. They start to, we start to feel superior to the things that we see represented. And we start to say, you know what? I should have married somebody different. I should have married... I, you know what I, how I missed harmony in my marriage is I should have married somebody who I have more in common with. The, the dating websites tend to have you pr- fill out profiles to let my, line you up with someone who's a whole lot like you for that reason. But God's design is different than that. Because God recognizes that the differences serve a purpose. Because if it, you can knock yourself out trying to find, find somebody who's exactly like you, and then you'll still run into the same trouble. You'll still find that there's, there are just differences. And eventually we get to the place where we don't even know how we got in this situation. So a bunch of kids were asked to, to say, is it better to be single or to be married? And the way they're surveyed here, just a, a sampling of the results, Kirsten, who's age 10, said, you should ask the people who read Cosmopolitan. Anita, age nine, said, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need somebody to clean up after them. (laughs) I love what Will said. Will is age seven. And Will was asked, is it better to be single or to be married? And Will's answer was, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. Can, let me just ask you this. How, how are you different from, if you're married, how are, how are you different from your spouse? Just think about ways that you're different. How are you different from your spouse? And how does that difference affecting you right now? What reaction does it get from you? Okay, God's going to give us some principles, and we're just scratching the surface on this, obviously. But to, to, if, it, if it, and I believe it is, that it is God's design that something synergistic happens when you understand and bring those two distinct kind of image bearers together. Something can happen. How do you do it? How can it happen? You're not going to hear the next few minutes and walk away from today and say, oh, now I have a harmonious marriage when I didn't before. No, but what we hope it'll do is just kind of steer us in the direction of where God says, no, there is a way for that to happen. There is a way for you to have a level of health in how you relate to the opposite sex, and especially in your marriage, that can actually heighten our level of appreciation and our level of wholeness 
when it comes, and oneness that comes as a result of that. So I'm going to give you a handful of, of just directives that seem to come from God's word about this. Okay, so, so here's God's design. Now, if you're in Genesis 1, you, I want you to see a very commonly seen phrase in, in the next chapter, because chapter 2 basically restates in more detail the overview of Genesis 1. And it's saying, okay, God created. Now, how did he create? And what are some details about it? And we're going to focus on the part where he created the marriage union and the husband and the wife. In verse 18 of Genesis 2, the Lord said, he, he looks at all, you know, all of creation, all of its good. He gives instructions to the man who's, who he's created. He hasn't created the woman yet. And it says, the Lord God said, all right, now here, there's something incomplete. It's not good for the man to be alone. It doesn't mean immoral. It just means it's not full, as full as it can be yet, not complete. And he uses this phrase, and my translation says, I will make a helper suitable for him. You're, in the old versions, it said a helpmate or a help who's fit, helper who's fit for him. What, whatever your translation might have it there, that's a Hebrew term. That this, a, a helper suitable for him kind of carries some meaning to it, a significant kind of thing. That helper suitable means there, there is there's some, but something else that could come along that when you couple it with what he brings, together there could be a strength that emerges, a fullness that emerges that he might not have otherwise. I'm going to make a, a helper suitable for him. I just, again, just do a flyby on it. It causes a deep sleep to fall over the man. But you look at verse 20, it says this again. He, he, Adam names all the livestock, all the birds of the air, and, and it says, but for Adam, no, same phrase, suitable helper was found. And so God causes a, a deep sleep to fall into him. He wakes up, he, he creates the woman. The man responds by saying, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's the same likeness and type. She's the same image bearer kind as me. And she shall be called woman, the complement to man, because she's taken out of man. And then it goes on to say the very famous phrase that Moses uses here and that Jesus quotes later, for this reason a man leaves his father and mother, united to his wife, and oneness can happen. All right, so how do you synergize the differences? First of all, where we probably need to start is to recognize the differences. To recognize and affirm the fact that they, there are differences. To stop forcing us to be the same with each other. Isn't it ironic that in our culture, which is all about diversity right now, we want to make sure we honor diversity. It's a big, big rallying point just in a whole lot of places until it comes to males and females and suddenly we want to make them united. We have this drive to say, don't, don't treat them like they're different. Kind of let them choose which they want to be. Recognize the difference. Recognize that it came from God, not from our culture, not from evolution. Stop forcing them, to, men and women, to be the same. Acknowledge that they're designed to be very, very different. And that and give ourselves permission to say that's okay for that to be the case. Redbook uh, the magazine took a lot of heat for, for, for something that they said, and this was based on study of both behaviors and wirings of, of, of our brains and how our bodies function, and they made these distinctions about men and women. And, and again, you can, these are not universal, but these tend to be true. This is what, here's how they summarize. There's a big, big difference. Here's, here's the list of what they said. Men consolidate, women diversify. Which is, they said, why a man wants a tool that can do 50 things, and a woman will go in the bathroom and have 50 thi- different things to get ready. 
which I've never fully understand. I just stay away from that stuff, man. I mean, it is all over the place. And they got, there's all kinds of things that touch different parts of your body. I don't even know what they do. I want a toothbrush and something to shave with, and I'm pretty good. Men, men consolidate, women diversify. Oh, see, you're going to just call me a sexist pig. Here we go. Men want to get going. Women want to get ready. I'll leave that one without saying anything more about it. Men care about what things do. That's why they always tinker and try to tear it apart. Women care about how things look. Men go for the big picture. Women cherish the details. Men rely on information. Women depend on intuition. Now, you may or may not agree with those things, but it was fascinating to me that the magazine was criticized because it was said, oh, you're just pigeonholing people. However we want to understand the differences, however they, we just need to recognize that we're supposed to be different from each other. We're not supposed to be identical to each other. Scripture just, just almost takes that for granted. It, in first, I just think this is interesting. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he says, he, he's not even talking about men and women, but he just ha- he, this is just an, an example of how he says it. In First Thessalonians 2.7, he says, we were gentle among you like a mother who cares for her little children. He invokes motherhood and what females do for that. A few verses later, he says, you, we, you know that we dealt with you, each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. The way we feel, the way we process information, the way, the way we think, the, the way we cope. There's some of us who are optimists by nature and some of us are realists by nature. Some of us don't want to borrow trouble so we don't think about the bad things that can happen and some of us will think about every bad thing that can happen so we can be prepared for the one that does. Is one of those right or wrong? Depends on who you ask. That's where we're going to go with this. What we tend to do is begin to assign negative value to somebody who does it differently than we do. Because what we do makes sense to us. God's going to say, no, recognize that there's a difference. And if we can take that step further, don't just recognize it, legitimize the difference. Grant value and respect to the one who represents that difference as part of God's image. Equal, even superior to our own. And this is where it's going to start breaking down. Hang on tight. Look, if you got in Genesis, look, look at Genesis 5. It's kind of entering the new section of Genesis where it's going to start talking about the population, growth, and how mankind spreads. But before it does, it makes a little summary statement that just kind of summarizes mankind before that. And so it says in Genesis 5, 1, this is the written account of Adam's line. And then it, here's the summary statement. And it says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And it's and almost like it wants to emphasize this point. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called the combined unit humankind. Adam, actually, is the Hebrew word from which Adam gets. Humankind, man, mankind. Together, they represent that which is the image of God on earth. So to legitimize that means that we grant value to that and we say, what I bring to the table how I think, how I'm wired, what I feel is only one aspect of God's nature. There are some other creatures who bring a different way of doing things. And here's the thing. When they do that, they are absolutely as equal in representing the character of Almighty God as my way of doing it. 
the image of God is reflected in the way that they are wired and what they do. And it says he blessed them in that. He, it, it, it doesn't mean he brought material things into their lives. It means he empowered that among them. He sent them off to live that out. So here's what we tend to do. What we tend to do is we see the differences, and over time we devalue the differences. We diminish them, and then we begin to punish them. We start to correct them. We say there's something inferior or dysfunctional about how you think, how you act, how you feel. You need, if, you were, if you were more like God's image, you wouldn't do it that way. You would do it like I do. Rather than understand, we, some of us didn't even know the difference was so great. When I, when I was dating my wife, for the first time I brought her to, meet my, uh, my, to my, my hometown, and we had a big Italian dinner. My mom cooked the sauce. I mean, it was like, ooh, this is good stuff, okay? And we, and we sit around the table, and, I, and we dis- I discovered something in that moment because this had never happened before. She had never, my, my wife is from a, a German-Dutch background, and I'm from an Italian background. And so we, we gathered around the table, and we, and we held hands, and we gave thanks. And that's where the fun started. Because as soon as we said amen, my family did what we have always done. We acted like Italians at the table. What that means is, if you, don't, if you hesitate, you miss the brajol. You don't get the meatballs. And it is, like, it is a feeding frenzy. All of a sudden, it is like just like diving and passing, passing. And, and there, there's a cacophony that happens because there's this way of talking and relating where people can ask a question and then get half a sentence out and the person knows what they're going to say and then they'll jump in and they'll say their thing. And there are four or five of these going on at one time and it's all jumping in. No one's, and everybody's hearing each other and everybody understands each other and we're having a great time. And then I look over at my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and she's just like, she's like freaking out. She's like traumatized because she grew up in a family where people respect each other and they listen to each other. That means you don't interrupt. You wait until they pause. You give them two or three breaths. And perhaps if you have something to say, then you speak. You have your napkin on and you, and you use all your utensils. <laughs> she couldn't get a word in edgewise. She got asked questions. So where are you from? Well, near Detroit. Oh, Detroit. Well, things are going because we understand. And, and when we got done, she, I mean, she's hyperventilating. She's like got a bag breathe. I and mean, that's my, my, what she's doing over there. We got done. I said, man, that was a great dinner, wasn't it? And she goes, <laughs> she doesn't even know what to do. And I, real, and, and I looked at her and I go, well, there's something wrong with you. That was my immediate thought. What's the matter with your people? How do you get anything done? How does anything get said? When do you ever eat? She, I don't know if she, she's probably too nice to think this. She probably looked at us and these, said, these people are lunatics. She did ask me, how do you know what anybody's saying? You don't listen to each other. I say, no, we all got it. We all heard enough. We knew where it was going. <laughs> at that moment... There's a decision that gets made, and then relationships, these these build on each other. There's a decision whether that's valued, the difference is valued or devalued. I will tell you that I devalued it in her at that moment. She needs to learn. She'll learn. She comes into an Italian family, she'll figure it out. I devalued it. What if 
God were to speak in that situation and say, do you know that you represent my character? Your tendencies come out of being an image bearer of me. But do you know that when she does what she does, she is every bit as you representing a, a part of my heart and character? I would probably say, uh-uh. Yeah, that good joke. But that's what God would say. You don't just recognize that there's difference. You legitimize them. You bless the fact that there are differences like God did. And so it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks about the parts in the body of Christ. And it's not talking about husbands and wives so much. It's talking about gift mixes. And, but it says, how can, the, how can the, the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? And yet that's what we do with our relationships. I have no need of the way you think, the way you feel, the way you process information, how you react to things, how you make decisions. What we tend to do is we tend to mock it. We grow intolerant of it, and then we fight over it. So much of the tension that happens comes as a result in, in marriage, comes as those differences not being affirmed, not being legitimized. And then what happens, so, so we look at the, the pace at which our spouse functions, or, or some member of the opposite sex, or another person. The pace, the, way, the, the perspective they bring to it, the approach they, they, they take toward it, the emotional mix they bring to it, and we get to the place where it becomes not just, it's no longer opposites attract, opposites repel. And then we get to the place where the word we have for it is the word that John Gottman used, who was, who was a pioneering, did a pioneering study on, on conflict in marriage, a predict, the predictors of marriage, and he came up with the word, he, has, he calls it the four horsemen of the apocalypse, four factors that are, that are the determining factors in most marriages that end. And, and he, as a professor of uh, psychology at the University of Washington, came up in his book, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, he predicted to almost, almost 90% prediction rate of divorce. And he said one of these four horsemen of the apocalypse are present, or one or more. Here they are. Criticism of a partner's personality, listening and articulating faults and mistakes. Defensiveness, stubborn unwillingness to admit weakness or wrong. Explaining away all our actions as excusable or because other vic- uh, others have victimized us. Stonewalling, which is walling up, withdrawal of relationship, the silent treatment, that kind of thing. And the last one is this. The word he uses, contempt. Where it gets to the place that you come from a position of, a, of superiority and the disdain for it grows so that you wind up carrying around contempt for the other person. That contempt drives a wedge between us. Instead of that, God invites us to do something that's not going to come very naturally for me and probably not for you. Rather than to do that is to legitimize this difference and to say, it's not only wrong of me and, and inaccurate of me to consider that difference inferior to me. That difference might actually be superior to me in certain situations. Not just that it has value, but it might actually be better it may better reflect the character of God in, in certain situations. It reflects an aspect of almighty God's character. And what it also does is it reveals a blind spot, a deficiency in what I bring to the table. Why did God need to bring two genders? Why couldn't he just put it all in one package? I got blind spots. I'm not fully representative of the image of God, but I'm more so when I'm combined with somebody who brings aspects of his character that I don't have. And so we think it's noble. We, we think we matured when we get to place in our marriages or relationships where we tolerate it. 
We say, oh, you know, that's just my wife being my wife. Oh, we just kind of roll our eyes. Oh, you know, you know, boys will be boys. I'll pretend that it's okay, but you know what that is? That's arrogance. Because God says, this is the, uh, the principle that we see many times in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, which is that reflex. But in humility, consider, look at the phrase there, consider others better than yourselves, not even equal to yourself. Understand that there's superiority in aspects of what somebody brings to the table. I was doing some premarital counseling with a guy who's a very, very sharp guy, very intelligent, very well educated, he was, and and, and we, we had this discussion about their differences. And when, he, and when he was talking about what was different, he used some terms that kind of gave me a little hint. Oh, you know, he's, he's treating her, he, he's placating her. He's patronizing her. Saying, well, you know, she's, oh no, I love, I love her the way she is. And, we, and when we talked about this, it, it was weird. There's one moment where I saw like this light bulb come on where the idea was, what if when God looks at her and looks at you and he says, you know, I'm gonna point to the one who represents parts of my character better, and by doing this, 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 is, my, this is my image. And he, what if he, when he points to her, the, the idea had never crossed his mind. Never crossed his mind. And to this day, that guy would say, that moment he looked at his wife, his wife-to-be at the time, and he saw her so differently than he had seen her because he saw her as one who actually represents something he doesn't have. That what she does that annoys him are actually things that represent the character of God if they're in their pure form. It changed the way he related to her. Now, I'm going to keep going here and say, beyond legitimizing the difference, then we have to take another step, and that's to energize the difference, which means to honor it and celebrate it, to invite it and to affirm it, to compliment it both publicly and privately. You know, we t- you know what we tend to do in our culture? We tend to withdraw from those who are different from us, and we get homogenous. We have people who look like us, act like us, like what we do. We, root for the, we go to the places where we're all rooting for the same team. And it happens in churches, too. And a whole lot of places we just kind of isolate. And so sometimes we get all the guys together. We go, you know what? I can be, the guys just need to be together. Now, the guys do need to be together. You're going to get invited, guys, to come this Saturday. Be together. It's good. The ladies need to get together. But we tend to just separate them out because, you know why? We just get kind of annoyed. We're just glad to be free from the weirdness that we see in the other one. They, they, they smell bad. They talk funny. They, they, they want to do things that no one in their right mind wants to do. And so we isolate from them. And what God does is he brings those together and say, you are missing a significant part of who I am if you isolate yourself from that. Yes, it's going to stretch you. Yes, it's not going to be comfortable for you. But you need to honor it. I think in 1 Peter 3, we're going to see this passage more next week. Let's talk about husbands and wives. Part of what's going on in 1 Peter 3 with instructions to each individual section, wives and husbands, is a call to them to seek to understand that there's a difference. And to not only allow that difference, but to enhance that difference. So when wives, it says, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. The word submissive, again, we'll talk about this more next week is not just, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. It's draw out what makes them distinct in their assignment from God and enhance it. Later on, in the next paragraph, it says, husbands, in the same way, 
Be considerate as you live with your wives. And I've said this before, be considerate does not mean please and thank you. It means think carefully through how you can enhance her movement in the world. Live with them in a way that actually considers what they bring to the table. And as a result, you, you see at the end that your co-heirs, they're heirs with you of the precious gift of life. So, how do you do that? Well, you know, how do you energize the difference? This isn't going to be rocket science. Say it. Compliment it. Acknowledge it. Do it privately. Do it publicly. That, we, saw, we, we saw Proverbs 31 a couple weeks ago. Here, look at what it says at the very end of that about this, this, woman, this godly woman who represents us. Give her the reward she's earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Who's going to do that? The person who sees it, the person who's close to her. It's the implication is that people are going to notice, but especially her family. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband is the one who's at the city gate. So he's the one that's implied to do that, to actually acknowledge it. Can I just say this too? That, that, that means we heighten the differences, we don't diminish them. You know how we diminish them a whole lot of time? We, we tell jokes. I, I will I'll tell you, I don't believe you should ever tell a joke that casts your spouse in, in, a, in a light that is unfavorable without their presence and without their permission. It's just so easy to do. Do you know that I, I have an arrangement with my wife because I love her and I honor her, and I've messed it up a couple times, but I, when we talk about our marriage, when I get up in front of you and I say things, I, I, have, I think, and I do this with my ch- kids too, but especially my wife, I say, I, I always ask her permission. Is it okay with you if I tell this story? Is it okay with you if I mention this that you said? Or did, Sometimes they look, sometimes they, we might laugh at it because of how it looks to me. Sometimes I might laugh about how it looks to her, but I ne- I've made a vow to her. The differences that come out of you, I do, they're not my, at my liberty to diminish them even with humor. Don't ever cast them in a, in a disfavorable light. Like, even if you say, I'm just joking. That's how you energize the difference. What, what, what is, let me just ask you this. Okay, you're, you're married or have a significant other in the room. Maybe they're with you. What is something that is true about their character, their personality, their skill set, something that's true about them that not just is different from you, if you stop and say it comes from God, you would have to say, you know what, you're better than me at that. You're better than me at that. Have you ever told them? Okay, let's do it now. If you came with a spouse, or, or, and if you didn't come with a spouse, but maybe there's just a member of the opposite sex who you know next to you, okay? But if you have your spouse, turn to them, right? Would you turn to them and say, here's something that's true about you. You're better at this than me. Go, do it, do it. Thirty seconds. Don't take all. Have an ask. If you have nobody with you, I would just like invite you to ask yourself, "What has God wired me up to be that I'm good at? What can I affirm and thank Him for? You're better than me at this." And guys, if you say being in the bedroom and being in the kitchen, I'm, I no mercy. Now, okay, just to start that conversation. 
That gets us chuckling a little bit, right? For some of us, it's a little awkward. Like, you want me to say it out loud? But something happens. For some of us in the room right now, you just said something. You, you just breathed life into somebody, your spouse. You didn't even know you did it. You might have thought it was something she, he, or, or he knows already. But the fact that you acknowledge it and you elevate it, what it does is it energizes that within them. It says there's something that we together are better at because of you than if it were just me. And here's the last word I'll use. So, so it was recognize, then it was, then it was legitimize it, then it's energize it. And the last one takes it to its end, which is to maximize the difference, which means you lead with your best player in, in the scenarios. You play to the person's strength in various tasks or settings. You actually allow one person to be the leader of a relationship when it comes to the things that God has given them that are better than you at. That I, I, I we'll, again, we're going to look at Ephesians 5 more next week too. But be, there's a header over the, the, the rate, and Ephesians 5 gets read at weddings, might have been read at your wedding, you know, women, wives do this, husbands do this. But there's a header in the paragraph that leads into the description of, 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 of husbands and wives and what they should do, and it's, it's found in Ephesians 5.21. I'm just going to show you the header. This is the header over it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The very next thing that happens is how the wives are supposed to do that. Then it's going to call on husbands on what they do as leaders. But there's a really significant call there that says there's a way that we submit to one another. And what that means is that, that we are we decide who's going to be on point to represent us in certain places, in certain settings. Who, it, being a leader does not mean you're always in charge. Sometimes it means that you, decide, you figure out who's better at it than you, and you say, you take the lead on this for us. You empower that. You, you maximize by putting them in the position. You take the lead. We, I've learned long ago, when we got returns to do at the store, okay, there's something that doesn't work, or we, and we're not sure it's going to happen because, uh, well, you know what, the, it's a 30-day return policy, and we're in day 45. I'm not sure it's going to happen. And we're running errands. We're going to go in, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I, I'm getting all puffed up, and I'm going to go attack and, and, there, and, and we've walked in sometimes, and my wife finally got smart, she, well, bold enough to say, sorry, bold enough to say, you stand down. This is mine. I know how to do this. I go, what do you mean? You know, I'm the leader. I'm the responsibility taker. And I'll tell you what I've found over the years. I've got, I, we've had this happen where I go in and I, I try to return something. And I get shot down, and I'm pulling out all, I'm trying to charm them, then I'm trying to power up on them, I'm trying to sound more intelligent than them, I'm asking for the supervisor, I got, all the, I got all the techniques, and I get shot down, and I walk out, and she goes, give me the receipt, give me the receipt. She walks in, she comes out later, carrying the, catching the money. Like, they gave her cash back. How, how did you do that? She's got this way. We have this thing about the cookies, right? She, she, uh, we, we were going to return this piece of furniture. I went in, and, they, and no returns. I mean, no return policies all over the place. It was... It was obvious there were no returns. And then we bought this piece of furniture, and then we were given one just like it. We go, oh, we go back in, and we, we go in, and, they, and, and I go in, and they shoot me down. She goes, oh, stand down, stand down. She walks in. I'm sitting in the car. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like the getaway driver. <laughs> All right, ready? Ready? Go, go, go. She walks out with a big smile on her face. She goes, bring it back tomorrow. They'll take it. I go, how'd you do it? She goes, well, I'm bringing them a plate of cookies. That, that worked? That's genius. 
a plate of cookies. And now it's the big thing. It's the saying around our house. Uh, she'll go, I'll take care of it. I'll get them some cookies. It's kind of, a, it's kind of like a symbol that there are things. You know what? She's just, she's better at relating to certain people than I am. She, she, and, and if I'm smart, I understand that she needs to be our leader. It doesn't, I'm not relinquishing con, uh, my leadership role. I'm empowering, I'm maximizing the difference. You are sit, if you're married, you're sitting next to somebody who should be on point for certain things in your life. There is no way that you should be on point for everything. You weren't designed that way. You aren't wired that way. God, you're violating God's design if you try to do that. What are the things that they should be on point on? The things that annoy you right now might be the very things that he says, no, put them on, on the front lines for it because they are representing my character. The more we affirm that rather than diminish it in our spouses, the more we maximize it, the healthier we get. You've got people in your cell group Men, you've got women in your cell group who need to be empowered to speak into your life. You need to give them permission to do that because they have a perspective that you need to hear. Women, there are men in your life who may, you may not like to be around them, but you know what? They will stimulate the character of Jesus in you if you allow them to have the platform to do that. When we do that, we learn, we see that there is a harmony that can happen. There's a synergy that can happen. Thomas Wheeler was, for years, he, uh, the CEO of the Massachusetts Mutual Life Company, big, big company. And he told this story, he wrote some books, and, and in one of the books he told a story about he was driving uh, somewhere with his wife. He's the CEO of this company. And they stop at a gas station, and there's a, somebody working at the gas, gas station, and he goes in, he's using the restroom, he comes out, and his wife is talking to this man who's, who's in a, a, working at the gas station. And they're kind of familiar, and he's, they say, oh, so good to see you again. Oh, yeah. They get in the car, he asks who it was. And she says, turns out, she's a guy she knew from high school and she dated him for like a year in high school. And Tom Wheeler drives away and he, and, you know, in, their, in whatever car they got, you know, the CEOs drive. And, he's, and his comment, he said to her was, man, you are, isn't it, it's sure good I came along, isn't it? Because if I hadn't come along, you might have been married to a gas station attendant. And her response to us, no. If I'd have married him, he would have been the CEO and you would have been the gas station attendant. <laughs> Can I just say this? I want to say this to the guys in the room, all right? The husbands in particular in the room. The call of God, and we'll talk again more about this next week, for us as leaders and shepherds of our surroundings and in our families, the call of God means that we, you are responsible to lead in such a way that this happens. That the one you're married to understands and sees and is fanned into flame the things that she is far superior to you in, is given platform to be the mobilizer of that and that you together as a couple grow in your influence because she's empowered. Can I say this to both the, both the men and the women in the room? In order to do this, it's going to circle right back to being rightly connected with God because this requires something to happen in your heart. It requires a humility to come into your heart. I will tell you that in my natural impulses, I don't think about this 
My natural impulses are to look at myself and the language I speak and what I do as being superior and what, what my spouse does as being inferior. In order for that to shift, something's got to happen in my heart first. And that's why the agape love of God that we talked about last week that only comes by being rightly connected and flowing with him through his son Jesus in my life, that agape love has the capacity to make my heart humble enough to recognize it and truly authentically affirm it in my spouse. It'll always come back to your heart. You won't just get better at this technique because you try saying some stuff. It's always going to come back to your heart. Where is your heart? Is your heart rightly connected with God through his son? Let me just ask you. If you're married, you can apply this to your marriage. If you're in community with the other gender, whether it's cell group, whether it's a workplace, whether it's extended family, whatever it be, where would you say you are in the process of seeing these differences and recognizing them, legitimizing them, energizing them, and then maximizing them? Where would you say you are with that person or in that setting? Which is the next one for you to enact? And today, our invitation from God, I believe, would be to get a fresh perspective on what those differences are and how we respond to them, what we do with them. For some of us, there's a repentance that needs to happen in our attitudes. There's a repentance that needs to be stated to the people who we have diminished. There's there's a, a resetting of the direction that could happen. And then there's a celebration that needs to happen, an affirmation, an empowering of that in each other. And watch what happens in your attitude and mind when we see that God not only coupled us with somebody who's different, but somebody who takes us farther when we empower it than we ever could have been by ourselves. All right, let's dig that out more in groups this week, and let's pray now. Would you join me?